last week's sermon this Wednesday. Uh, so if you or anybody else would like to come and, and berate me for not believing that everything happens for a reason, you are welcome to do so 6 o'clock Wednesday here at the church or 6.30 at my place on Tuesday. Yes. Not you. You were not allowed to That is not open to you. I wanted to, um, oh, do we have any other announcements? Anything else? Break for all right, I wanted to begin, no, no, again, not open to you. Um, I wanted to begin this morning, I was reminded just of a, one of my favorite prayers this week um, that I wanted to open to you. If you don't know this book, it's called The Valley of Vision. It's a, a Puritan collection of prayers. Most of them are anonymous in origin, and um, they're beautiful. You know, uh, there's definitely a benefit of spontaneous prayer. And if you're in the Word of God for us today, and there's also a benefit of hearing the word of God to our ancestors in their day, you know, and, and hearing their, their prayers that for whatever reason they thought to record and, and write down for us today and that God preserved for us today. So this is, this is the prayer that the book is named after. Many of you are very familiar with it, but I want to start this morning by reading this and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer and, and we'll get started. So feel free to adopt whatever posture of prayer you would like. Lord God, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is a place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, Thy joy and my sorrow, thy grace and my sin, thy riches and my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. Amen. And y'all please pray with me as the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, as we forgive trespasses. As you forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Phil's fault. It's Phil's fault. Don't worry. We just want to have pictures today. Do you have COVID? Um, I don't think so. Why are you worried about So I don't give COVID or give it to other people if I have it and don't know. Um, hey, so all right. Debates happen Wednesday night. We're going to shut that down. The Lord Thank you. And praying together. So our readings this morning Thanks, kind of Phil. pick up and build on our readings from last week, which kind of build on the theme for all of ordinary time, which is this question of what must we do to have eternal life? How do we live a life of God's blessings and not of curses brought about by our own brokenness? In the words of the psalmist in the psalm for today, which we won't be reading together, but which, with which we're probably all familiar, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the psalmist goes on to list all of these things that we have to do or not do to be able to stand in the presence of God. And it's a list we could never hope to live up to. And all of our Old Testament readings emphasize this idea over and over again of the goodness of God and of what he requires of us and of how far we fall short. And we're left with this feeling of this rift, of this lack between where we are and where God has created us to be and where God desires for us to be and where God has called us to be. And then we come to our New Testament passage, which we'll be reading in the epistles and the gospel. And in our epistle reading, Paul just pours forth this beautiful declaration that all of the answers to all of our lack, all of the answers to all of our longing, all of the answers to all of our brokenness are found in Christ, who has created all things, who holds all things together, and who has reconciled us as estranged and hostile as we are, has reconciled us to God and to one another. And we're given this story in our gospel. It's the story of Mary and Martha. It's another one that's probably very familiar to many of us. Um, when I was looking for pictures online like I do every week, I found like t-shirts and coffee mugs and fancy calligraphy posters that say things like, I want to be like Mary, but send Martha over to clean my house. Because we've reduced this story, right, to a competition between whose love language is better, which is not what it's about. The gospel is not saying that I am better than my husband because I would prefer to study and talk about theology and he won't stop washing the dishes. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. Also, he's usually listening to theology while he's washing the dishes because my husband is a saint. <laughs> but that's not what this passage is about. And we know that because we saw in our gospel reading last week about the Good Samaritan. And we see in scriptures again and again love of God and love of neighbor expressed through service, expressed through action, expressed through giving. So if that's not what this passage is about, what is it about? And I think there are a few things that aren't obvious to us as modern Westerners reading this story that would have been much more obvious to people hearing it in its time. 
And the first is what Mary is doing. It's not that she's sitting while her sister is working. It's that she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, a rabbi, a wise, holy teacher. To sit at the feet of a rabbi was to make yourself a disciple. And to us, that seems good. That's what we're all called to do. That's what we're all called to be. But in that time of place, not just anyone could be a disciple. You couldn't be a woman, for one thing, and you couldn't be just any man. You had to be the right age. You had to be the right social status. You had to have the right religious credentials. And Jesus constantly and so dramatically upended those societal expectations that Mary felt welcome to come and make herself his disciple. And this would have been scandalous. This would have been grossly disrespectful to God and to him and to her family. And we also don't understand in our society how important hospitality and duty were. To not serve a guest in your home, to not do your part as part of a family in making them welcome and giving them what they need and seeing to their needs would have been a disgrace upon you. It would have been an insult to your family. It would have been an insult to your guest. By every societal expectation, what she was doing was unacceptable, rude, irreverent. But none of that mattered to her because Jesus was there. And when confronted with the impropriety of this situation, Jesus' response is, only one thing matters. Only one thing is necessary. She's chosen the better thing and that will never be taken away from her. And that is the same thing that Paul is telling us in our epistle reading in Colossians. It's not that family doesn't matter. It's not that community doesn't matter. It's not that serving and doing the dishes don't matter. What matters is that all of those things find their best expression in Jesus. And if we are not doing as Jesus did, he said, he and the Father, I and the Father are one. Whatever the Father is doing, that's what I do. Whatever the Father is saying, that's what I say. And he called us to that same unity. When we are one with him, doing what he's doing, and saying what he's saying, he will lead us to love our families better than we would be able to love them on our own. He will lead us to restore and build community and show hospitality in better and truer ways than we could possibly devise with our broken human minds and our hurt feelings. It might be easier for us to have a list of rules or guidelines that just say, in this situation, do this. In this situation, do that. But that is not what God has called us to. He has called us to a relationship where we are constantly dependent on him to know what is good and what is true and what is pure and what is loving and what is helpful. We cannot figure it out on our own. We cannot come up with a system to decide for us. We have to have that relationship. We have to hold fast to the one who created us, who reconciles us, and who holds all things together. Let us hold fast to the one who holds all things together. Mr. Joshua, would you please read for us? Yes, morning, church. Morning. I'm reading from the book of Colossians, chapter one, verse 18 through 28. the image of the invisible God, for the one of all creation, and him all things in heaven and on earth, and created, and 
church. You can begin with the firstborn from the dead, so that you might come to that first place in everything. In him, all the fullness of God speaks the way. Through him, God will speak to reconcile to him and himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, and make peace with the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, when he knew we, he is now reconciled in his flesh and body to death. Gospel in chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray together. I love that. Do you have another slide? I love that. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Please pray with us. Image of the invisible God, you hold all things together. You are our chart, you are our course, you are our anchor, you are our wind. Our estranged and hostile hearts find their every hope and healing in you. But we are worried and distracted by many things. We worry about being good enough we worry about what others will think. We worry about whether what is asked of us will be more or less than it asks of those around us. Forgive us, O Lord. Turn our attention back to you, for your love is greater than all our worries. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. You are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. And through him, you are forgiven. You are welcome. You are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. Let us hold steadfast to the hope we have been promised. Loving, Loving God, God, open, open our, our ears, ears to hear, hear your, your word. word. 
and draw us closer to you, that the whole world may be one with you as you are one with us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. scripturally relevant, so let's go to what this is about from Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago.
based on how well we love you because you love us perfectly. I pray that as we come this morning and hear from your word, hear from Proverbs, I pray that the words that are spoken remind us of, of just what you've done for us. You've done what we couldn't do. You are sufficient, you are powerful, you are God. And I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on you this morning, that you would dwell in our hearts every day that you do, but also that you would just settle within us and the words we have for us, that that would live in us. We pray all these things in your name. church is very come as you are. We thought about putting a sign up, come as you are, but then we decided there was a caveat of come as you are unless you're uh, drunk, disruptive, and violent. If that's the case, then just stay right on home, you know? <laughs> and then that sign just was going to be way too big, and then we decided against it. <laughs> but uh, please go with me, if you would, church, to Proverbs chapter 12. I'm going to be reading several verses throughout the sermon, so I didn't put them up on the screen just because we're going to be kind of jumping around. So if you need a Bible, you're welcome to use one of ours. If you raise your hand, someone, it's like an 80% chance, someone will probably bring you one. Providing large print with one. Large print. <laughs> I got one. I can see the small print. And I, I've been reading Proverbs 31. There we go. So we've been in a series through the book of Proverbs for several weeks now. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And wisdom is different from information. We have more information than we could ever ask for or go through in our day. Way more information than we can handle. But do we have wisdom? Wisdom is knowing what really to value in life, how to live, and what, what gives our life meaning. Perhaps more than anything, what we need is not the information, but our day, but the wisdom of times and places other than our own to help us break free of the common ideas and behaviors which have so shaped our culture. Our ideas like, we need ideas like, like joviality, like fortune, like prudence, these things that we've been going through and talking about. And Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs, insists wisdom isn't hiding, but God is proclaiming and revealing it in every corner of creation, calling out in the streets, even sometimes the streets of the French Quarter. It's just that folly, which is really just evil and death and sin by another name, folly is also calling to us. And in the noise of life, it's hard to know what to believe. Who can you trust to know and speak the truth? How can we live in a way that won't leave us empty and alone? That won't leave us on the wrong side of history, regretting what we've done? This morning, our passage is dealing largely with something I have been thinking about, struggling through, enormously over the past two years as a pastor. My words. Our words, the things we say to ourselves and to each other. We forget because we use them every day, but the things that we say shape our lives, shape our families, shape our communities, for better or for worse. Our words can either be the building blocks of healthy lives and communities and families, or they can be the fire that burns everything to the ground. So pray with me briefly this morning. We'll hear wisdom calling to us through the ages. 
Father God, I pray in the midst of distraction, God, that you would help us to focus. Lord, what a good picture of the way in which we go about in the world. Things shouting, yelling, demanding attention, God, and, and yet your wisdom is coming through in a still, quiet voice, urging us to listen, to live our lives well. God, and I pray as I always do that regardless of what comes out of my mouth, God, that what people would learn from your word today is your truth, because we know your truth will set us free, and we desperately long to be free. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. I want to start this morning with the overwhelming theme of Proverbs 12, which is your words both reveal and direct your heart. Your words both reveal and direct your heart. In other words, all of our prophecies are self-fulfilling. Verse 6, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. Verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Verse 20, deceit is the heart is in the heart of those who despise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And on and on. The book of James, which I would call a New Testament book of wisdom, picks up this theme and gives three helpful analogies. Uh, James says speech, or what in most other languages is called tongues, or the tongue. He says the tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth, or like the rudder of a ship. Wherever the tongue goes, eventually the rest of you will follow. It's true. Your words both reveal and direct your heart. It's true for us individually, it's true in our families, and it's true in the culture of our communities. Raising children and serving as a pastor has taught me this lesson, the importance, the power of my words in a thousand ways. You are never more careful with what you say than when you're around children. Why? Y'all know this. Why? Because they repeat everything. Everything. Um, you know, I, I was thinking this week about, as I was writing this, about those spy pins that we all had in middle school. I am maybe revealing my age. Those spy pins that, we, you know, they would repeat back to you five seconds of whatever it is you just said. Um, yeah, I have that right now, but it's, it's in a person. So, you know, cash right now, whatever you say, he'll repeat back to you with just like an exclamation point at the end. You know, it's like, hey, buddy, how are you doing? Buddy! <laughs> Did you sleep well? Sleep! Hmm. And then when they get older, they stop repeating you. So AJ now, you know, he's seven years old. He doesn't repeat what I say anymore, but he's just like a little sponge. He takes it all in. It comes out at random intervals. Annalise and I call it the rock tumbler. You know, like we say things, it just tumbles around in there, and then every once in a while he spits out a gym. <laughs> talking with him this week, the conversation, I, I swear he is going to be an investigative journalist. The conversation went something like this, Dad, on January 5th at 2.34 p.m., uh, you said that we might go to the trampoline park in the summer because it is inside and air-conditioned, and uh, it's July now, so let's just all be a bit of our word here. <laughs> 
where you have what you think is a private conversation with your wife about a neighbor and hypothetically said neighbor's parenting habits. And then the next day, your child is standing on the front porch, again, all hypothetical here, shouting to said neighbor exactly what mom and dad think about the way that they parent their children. It's good for that neighborly bond. <laughs> And as a pastor, if you want to know my thoughts on some aspect of church or culture, horrifyingly, those thoughts are probably online somewhere. So if you want to find some reason to, uh, as, you know, as, some, as some choose to do, even as recently as five minutes ago, uh, be offended and, and shout and, and swear you'll never come back. Uh, if you want to do that, if you want to find some reason for that, it's bucharychurch.org backslash sermons. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure whatever demon invented comment sections on church socials and websites is running a whole department in the corporate underworld right now. Uh, you know, <clears throat> that had to be a big promotion. It's, it's that guy, the one who invented customer service departments, uh, the one who came up with internet account passwords, and the one who invented stickers that are on fruit or just on anything and they break instead of just peeling off. Uh, those guys are the VPs down there right now. Um, parenting and pastoring have taught me whatever comes out of my mouth directs my family, directs the, my church, directs my own life and actions. The tongue directs the heart. Your words are powerful in your own life, in your family, in your marriage, in your church. When you notice something in these analogies, like a fire, like a knife, are the words we speak. I want you to notice that in the ancient world, fire and, and knives would have been elements of daily life. They would have been used to cook food, to nourish families, to do work. They're also things that you had to be incredibly cautious with. Because even though they were tools of daily life, they also had incredible power. Your cooking fire gets out of hand and you lose your house. Your knife gets misplaced and you lose a child. Still today, these things are true. They are both incredibly powerful and also routine. Our words, in the same way we use them every day, but they are incredibly powerful. And so you have to be careful. When you let them get out of hand, or worse, if you're intentionally using them to harm, they can do horrible things. A misplaced word spoken to a child, a careless thought about yourself, a word spoken to a friend in anger, and before you realize it, you have opened a wound that will not easily heal. You have done damage to some structure, to some society that will not easily be rebuilt. So let's start with us as individuals. Let me ask you, what do you say to yourself? What do you believe of yourself? And is it wise? Is it what God believes of you? Is it what he says? about you. I know in my private thoughts I'm able to, to bear compassion and forgiveness in Christ to most people I meet, but having compassion on myself is, is extremely difficult. Forgiving myself for mistakes, and not even, not even mistakes, just like faux pas, right? Um, just having human limits, it's nearly impossible. Over and over in a thousand ways, I tell myself I am not enough to be helped, to 
to be cared for, to be loved. When the truth of the gospel is that I never had to be enough in the first place to be loved by Christ. He sees all of my failure, but he still wants to be with me, still wants to adopt me as a child, our father. I've known people who call themselves ugly or stupid when the truth of scripture is that they are beautifully and wonderfully made and bear the image of God. People who say to themselves, you can't trust anyone when God is asking them to trust in him daily and live in community with his people. People who tell themselves they have to pay for what they've done. When the truth of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. And in him you were forgiven and welcomed and loved. Be careful with your words, church. They direct your heart. And in your marriages, in your families, in those close friendship relationships, how do you use your words? Are you careful to tend the fires of what you say to one another? Do your words sustain your relationships like a meal cooked over a flame? Or are they more like a fire that's burning down the house? I've been in rooms, thinking about verse 18 here, I've been in rooms where, where the words like knives analogy is very real, where, where married people who have been together for decades, who have loved each other for a lifetime, are stabbing each other back and forth with words like knives. Blame, bitterness, dragging up past wrongs, trying to gain moral high ground instead of allowing love to cover transgressions. We're friends who love each other, use their tongues like fires to say just the right thing to burn the conversation down. Parents who know just the right thing to make their child feel shame. Words like knives. We shouldn't use words against each other, we should use them to provide for, to nourish, to build each other up. And in the church and the culture, what do, your, what do your words do? How's your online profile there? How's your social media account? We're over dinner tables, in overheard conversations, in church with friends, about hot topics, and in church decisions and debates. Is everything you say to quote Paul in Ephesians, what is helpful? For building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen? Is that what your words are doing? Or are your words knives, hacking, dividing, canceling, excluding, wounding? Are your words like fires, out of control, burning it down? Verse 20 says those who plan for peace have joy in their hearts. Is that what you walk away from in your interactions with others? Do your words and your relationships reveal something else inside your heart? Bitterness, perhaps, or anger, blame for the fortunes of the world. Maybe in this we need repentance. And when we do repent, when we confess our sins one to another, God has grace. He is just to forgive us our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Maybe you need to make a call after service today. Maybe you even need to do it in the response time after the sermon, before you back down, to apologize. Or maybe you need to find someone in the room and apologize. Tell them you've regretted it since you said it. Ask for forgiveness. Invite them to dinner. One old traditional prayer of forgiveness goes like this. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. 
And it says later on, it says, on the things that we've done and the things we've left undone. So maybe we should ask ourselves this morning, not just what we've said, but what we have left unsaid. Maybe you're like me. I sin less in the things that I say than in the things I've left unsaid. I knew she wasn't going to be here this morning to hear this, so I told her before I left, Annalise, you are brave and brilliant, and you do hard things, and I love you. Do your children know that you love them and that you think of them often? That you're proud of them? And that you miss them when they're not with you? Men, especially in our culture, I, I think, leave so much unsaid, as though showing affection to another man or woman puts us in danger of being soft or inappropriate. You don't have to flirt to be kind. And it doesn't make you less of a man to show affection. Does your friend know that you love him, that you depend upon him, that your life wouldn't be the same without him? Does your coworker or your employee know that you think she's doing a great job and that she has good ideas and that you appreciate her contributions? I'm sure we could go around the room and each of us could talk about words which have been spoken to us, conversations, good and bad, that we've had in our lives which echo in our minds, which have changed our entire lives, which have formed us and shaped us socially and spiritually for better or for worse. Your words both reveal and direct your heart. What you say matters. Your words are powerful. The second theme from our text this morning related to the power of words is this, and this has been for the past three chapters Proverb after proverb, I've been waiting to preach this, that you're, that wisdom, friends, wisdom is humble. Wisdom is humble. Verse 9 says, Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Verse 23 says, A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Humility. To quote Lecrae Moore, speaking of America, welcome to the culture where humility is not allowed. In our culture, we want to stand out, speak up, stand up, write a blog, create a YouTube channel, get noticed, gain followers, gain likes, gain influence, write a blog, create a, <clears throat> nope, said that, climb the ladder, take what you want, speak your truth, flaunt what you've got, fake it till you make it, never apologize, and don't show weakness, don't back down. But wisdom, Thank you, Lewis. Wisdom is humble. Humility is probably one of the most misunderstood virtues in Christianity. Most of the time we think humility and meekness, we think of some kind of apologizing, underdressed, bowing person who is always talking bad about himself, when that's not necessarily humility at all. We think about humble people as though who intentionally seek out low positions and humiliating tasks, which is closer, but still not it. You're fooling yourself if you think that by avoiding positions of power or authority or responsibility that you are living humbly. Make Christ your model. Christ who proclaimed himself to be God incarnate publicly, who claimed to have authority over kings, who claimed or who gathered crowds of thousands 
and taught them because he knew that he had the words of truth, that he had the words of eternal life. He debated the top minds in the temple and ate at the finest beasts, wore the finest cologne, revealed his glory on the mountaintop, and also he was friends with fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes. And he loved his mom. His mom who was disgraced. His mom who bossed him around and he let her tell him what to do. He cried with grieving women and let women sit at his feet and learn as we read this morning. He left his throne, he emptied himself, he washed the feet of his disciples, and he calls us to live a life like his. Humility is less about seeing yourself as lowly or treating yourself as lowly and more about seeing yourself rightly. If you are a Christian, yes, you are a sinner, but you are also a child and heir of God himself. You are a friend and co-heir with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. Humility, in short, is to value in yourself and others the, thing God, the things God values. Believing of yourself and others what God believes of you and them. He calls you sinful, broken, lost, wonderful, beloved, friend, brother, child, saint, the redeemed of the Lord. Humility is the ability to be honest with yourself and to treat others as greater than yourself. C.S. Lewis says, if you ever were to meet a truly humble person, you would probably walk away not with a sense of how lowly that man was, but with a sense about how much he cared about and listened to you. He says the humble man will not be thinking about humility all the time. He will not be thinking of himself at all. One pastor friend of mine, for example, is a very, very fine preacher. So people tend to come up to him after the service and tell him, wow, you did a great job, and they, they got a lot out of it. And I've only ever heard him respond in one way. He always says, I love this. He always says, praise God. Praise God. Not, not oh, no, it was a terrible sermon. You're too kind. Or, or well, I, I shouldn't be up here at all. Let, let's hear from you next week. He doesn't say that. He says, praise God. And I asked him about it one time, and he told me, it's a reminder to himself and to whomever he's speaking with that if ever a heart is changed through his speaking, through his preaching, it is the Holy Spirit working through him. And God, who should be praised in that. Beyond that, he was grateful to God for the talents he had been given. And he was grateful for the opportunity to nourish people's faith. And he considers this kind of service a great honor and a great joy. Humility. I know another pastor in our area who is who is probably the preeminent theologian in our region. Brilliant man, educated in Germany theologically, and I, I had the privilege for a few months, just before I started here, and honestly it was one of the biggest wretches in coming here. I, I was excited to come here, but I knew I was leaving this man who had just joined our church behind. So I went to church with him for just a few months when I first greeted him, I walked up to him and greeted him with his titles, right? Like, oh, Dr. So-and-so, thank you so much for being here. Um, and he told me to call him by his first name, and then he introduced his wife. And he never hid his knowledge of the things of God. He never pretended that others knew more, we didn't. Um, but he also didn't flaunt it. He just spoke up when he deemed it helpful to do so. And we'd always speak in such a way, not to, not to shame or belittle anyone, but to teach and to build up. 
usually he would just sit and listen to others discuss the passage and then come up to the small group leader at the end of the small group and tell, tell him what a wonderful job he's doing. And wow, thank you so much. He would really open up in the prayer time because he was so eager to hear about other people's lives and know how to pray for them and to share about his own struggles and ask for prayer. I really got a sense that he viewed prayer with a sense of dependency, humility. Those are two people just in, in my profession, and so that's who I, I think of. I wonder what humility looks like in the things that God has called you to do, church. It may look like getting a, a simple job to be able to provide for yourself, tithe, and care for the people around you, and live a loving, quiet, simple life. Or it may look like nourishing and celebrating the successes of that younger person at work who probably has more talent than you. Or talking happily to your wealthy friend about that vacation that they took that you could never afford in a million years. Taking time to listen to a child talk or throw a football with them. Admitting that you have talents in some areas and not in others. <laughs> and then using those talents, using what you're actually good about, to serve the people around you as good stewards of God's very grace. And going back to your tongue, your words, humility, for you may look like beginning to listen more than you speak out. And not just listening quietly and never changing your mind as we are so in the habit of doing in our modern world, but accepting instruction and correction as wisdom does. Or for you, and this takes wisdom to know which, right? Because for you, the opposite may be true. Humility for you may be to recognize that you do need to lead a small group, that God has directed you to that, that you need to be teaching because that's a gift that God has given you. He's given you words that you are meant to use humbly to serve the people around you. You ought to use those gifts in humility and gratitude in service. Where humility may be learning how to apologize to your wife and husband. I know one couple um, that I, I love, that I know of them, that they, they do not apologize. That is not how they end conflicts. And um, honestly, I wonder how long they have. Humility may be learning how to apologize to each other. To your wife, to your husband, to your friends, to your children which is humiliating, humility. To be the one to start the conversation about mistakes you made in caring for them so that it doesn't go unsaid. To make contact again, to recognize that you are a person of worth and value in God's eyes, and so you are a person who is worthy of the deepest love and care. A prudent man conceals knowledge but the heart of fools proclaims folly. As you think about your words, as you think about the way it reveals and directs your heart, I want you to consider humility. And in humility, as we close this morning, I want you to respond in some way. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you truth about yourself. Pray with the person next to you, or here on the kneelers, or you can pray with me in the back, it doesn't need to be some big emotional thing. It can be. That's fine, too. You could just need prayer, though. Very appropriately this morning as we prepare to take communion. If your brother or sister has something against you, go in peace and humility and make peace.
Don't leave anything unsaid this morning which needs to be spoken. And learn to speak in such a way that it builds up the people around you and nourishes them instead of tearing them down. Pray with me now. Father God, you say you give wisdom to all without finding fault. God, I pray you would give us wisdom this morning. Lord, wisdom to know what to say in moments where it's difficult. God, in moments where we're tired and careless, God, I pray you would give us wisdom to know humility. Lord, to recognize the gifts that you have given us that we can use to serve one another. God, to recognize not that we are worthless, God, because we are not. You have given us worth. You have called us beautiful and wonderful and children and beloved. God, but I pray that we would learn our worth in you as sinners saved by grace. Lord, that we would lead in all of our interactions as though our righteousness is filthy rags. God, as though you are the one who has called us and paved our way for good works. And that it is a privilege to serve the people around us as you have given us gifts. And if you, as you have created opportunity. God, I pray simply that you would give us truth to set us free this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name so we know you hear us. Amen. Respond as you would.
This morning as we prepare our hearts to take communion, please join me in prayer. Father God, I have been in constant amazement since my friend and co-worker spoke these words to me. Lord, I know I keep saying it, but I'm just constantly amazed. You could, you could have given any sign for remembrance, any action, any ritual, and yet you gave us the simplest and most basic meal and said, do this in my memory. God, thank you for the accessibility of your grace. God, thank you for the commonness of it, the joviality of it. God, thank you for the nourishment of it. Thank you for your work on the cross, Lord, for your death and your resurrection, by which we are forgiven and welcomed into your family. I pray this in Jesus' name. I know you hear us. This is how this works. Uh, I'm going to ask Lewis to come join me, if you will. And we are going to call everybody up forward first to take a, a piece of bread cracker, I think, this morning we have and, and take it back to your seat and we'll all eat it together after I read the words of institution and then we'll do the same with um, the wine which is not wine but I think grape juice um, so uh, please come as you're ready received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me take and eat as you are.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we do. Amen. Father God, we again thank you for your work, your atoning work on the cross, God, that allows our sins to be covered. God, your love covers a multitude of sins. And between us, God, your love allows us to be kind, to be loving with each other. Lord, and we praise you in every way we can. <coughs> your life, death, and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you yours. Amen. Before we go, I think our slide first, eh, there we go. Alright, Lewis is being overused today, he's got too many jobs. Before we go, please join me in the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him of